Hello, I am Mark Lavecki. I am the McDonald Distinguished Fellow for Ethics, War, and Public Life at Providence, a, magazine, or a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. And I am here with Providence contributor and Hudson Senior Fellow, Rebecca Heinrichs. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Good and to we be are with you. It's good to be with you. Um, you've been a contributing editor from the very beginning and appreciate your uh, many articles and insight on Providence or for Providence. And today we were talking about uh, the ongoing uh, war in Ukraine. And I know it's a it's a subject that is um, in many ways dear, I think, to both of us, not just intellectually or as scholars, but um, it sort of cuts to the heart of a lot of things that we hold dear. Um, I have friends who are, are reporting from Ukraine. Um, I suspect, you know, people on both sides of, of the conflict. Uh, as do many of us. And uh, I think we both have a sense that that people, uh, maybe Christians, especially uh, continually need help trying to sort things out. How do we think clearly about something that seems so hopelessly intractable? There's lots of passions um, and we'd like to sort some of that out. So maybe to start things off, Rebecca, what is your sort of uh, update on Ukraine? Where are we? Um, where is the fight? Yeah, so um, uh, the Russians um, have have uh, have not been as successful as they thought they would in in this in the amount of time. I think we're approaching the three week mark almost, and and so they while they they are making military advances, they have not um, um, totally gained the the control that they thought that they would be able to by now. Um, now it's we're, we're kind of in the fog of war, and so that's that's part of the reason that it's confusing. You can talk to different people, and there's, there's there there isn't kind of a um, a a solid consensus on what those military gains have been that the Russians have achieved. But there is consensus that they have not been as successful as they want. They haven't been able to hold um, uh, territory and gain control of cities like they thought they would. Um, obviously the Zelensky government has not even, um, neared the point of surrender. They still have a lot of fight in them. And the Ukrainian military has, uh, has, has surprised a lot of people. It's not the same kind of military we saw during the last Russian invasion of Ukraine, Crimea. The, the Ukrainian military is better trained. They, they're more cohesive. They are, they are, um, exploiting the, um, logistics failings of the Russians, and they are using very successfully a lot of the weapons that the West has been sending sending them. So uh, Zelensky is is rallying everybody. He's he's earned the uh, the the what do I want to say? Um, Admiration. Yes, uh, the adoration of many Western capitals and um the american people and he's he's really digging his his heels in and he's fighting for his country and his people and for ukraine and so here we are where the congress he just spoke addressed the congress through this video and um as as i said i've 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 seen some um reporting coming out from that but i didn't get to see the whole thing this morning but um he's asking for more weapons he's asking for different kinds of weapons and from the united states and from other nato allies and so here we are 
Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, Zelensky seems one part rock star, one part Churchill, one part, which might be repeating myself in many cases. Um, he's been an inspiration. That's that's for sure. Uh, I don't know that anybody except maybe Zelensky uh, believe that we would still be at war uh, three weeks after the launch of it. Right. Um, it seems that a lot of people thought, you know, this is going to be over quickly. Um, but the last briefing I have even had from somebody who is very close to the Ukrainian military and understands them well said, these guys, what these guys are, one of the things you look for in a military to decide how well they're going to do is actually, you know, how how ironed are their uniforms and how buttoned up are they and how clean are their weapons? What is the kind of discipline they have? And he said, they've got it. They are serious. And so that was, you know, they said, so you, you look at all of these other kind of indicators and they had all of that. And this individual told me, he said, man, these guys, they're going to put up an amazing fight, but they're outgunned and they're outmanned and they're going to die. And that's what he said. And it was just this very blunt, um, sort of just sad thinking about what was going to happen. And so I, I do think that even the people closest to the Ukrainian military are still very surprised that this is still going on uh, nearing week three. Well, there's probably nothing like an existential threat to sort of focus the martial mind, right? Mm -hmm. One of the lines that you'll appreciate when you uh, maybe look at Zelensky's speech to Congress later, he said something to the effect he was talking about what a strong nation is. And he made sure to stress that a strong nation isn't simply a big one. He said a strong nation is one that is brave and ready to fight. And you're sort of like, well... There you are, Slava yeah. Ukraine, right? Yes, and we, yeah, that's so. That I mean, it's it's true, it, and 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 they they have the confidence that their country is worth fighting for, and right. and we right. we are getting that message loud and clear from the Ukrainians, right? right. Um, from Zelensky's mouth to our own ears, I think, mm -hmm. um, because it's a that, that's a ready question for probably too many populations in the West, right? So there's lots of lessons to be learned. Um, speaking of lessons learned, so if if Putin is as surprised as anybody else at how long this has taken and the seemingly uh, you know small advances that he's made, uh, is he adjusting? Uh, is he moving implacably forward? Um, is this still a foregone conclusion that no matter what the glorious fight uh, Ukraine will lose, or is everything on the table now? So the, the way I kind of have thought about this is I I am, am not one of those people who thinks that uh, Ukraine can ultimately prevail in a military operational sense. They're just they're, the Russian military is simply too big. They have too many weapons, and they, I mean, you know, we keep hearing in the news that they've they've they put a hundred percent of their combat power that was pre-invasion kind of lined up inside Ukraine. But that's a tiny sliver of of the rest of their combat power that they can have. Sure. So. Um, depending on how long the Russians are going to be willing to continue this and looking at the cost it is to them, um, they, they, there's, there's just, they could do this for much longer. And, and then, of course, especially if the Chinese throw in and actually supply the Russians with um, the weapons they're asking for, which there's reporting in the, right now that indicates that the Russians have asked the Chinese for, for um, more weapons. So we'll see how that, that would be a totally different equation. So we'll kind of set that aside. However, there is another kind of victory. This is this, this like strategic victory that the Ukrainians can um, 
demonstrate that they can make this so miserable for the Russians, that they can continue to kill Russians, continue to, to take out expensive military equipment and, and that the Russians have, and they can just continue to make the cost so great that the West continues to levy even tougher sanctions on the Russian economy, and that the, the political cost is just so high and the Russians really become a pariah state to the extent that, that Putin and his generals decide they can't afford it anymore. You know, you can continue to just crank up the cost and you can get to the point where you give Zelensky enough to, to play um, in, a, in some kind of final outcome settlements between the Russians and the Ukrainians. And in that sense, I think strategic victory um, in, in some form is still possible for Ukraine, that they can have some kind of Ukrainian independence by the end of this, even if they can't ultimately uh, win in this sort of a military operational sense, which I still think is just impossible, frankly. Yeah. Right. So, it, right. Okay. So you're, you're painting sort of a Thermopylae picture, right? Yeah. You, Ukraine is the 300, right? They're fighting exactly. bravely. Um, but, but, but the end is clear. Uh, are the costs for Putin in, in achieving that military victory, are those, and, and maybe a little bit of what you're saying, it, it, no matter how inevitable maybe the Russian victory is, there's going to be a cost to that. And it's presumably yes. not going to happen next week or the week after, right? It's going, to, it's going to drag on. There must be costs every day to Putin that this war drags on. So is even military victory something that Putin is now necessarily insistent upon? Or is he also potentially looking for some sort of face-saving way out of this, in which he knows he's not going to get everything he started hoping he would get, but in which you know he, 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 can, he can withdraw without looking like he's just suffered a humiliating defeat? Yeah, I, I don't see any scenario. First of all, we don't know how much Putin even knows accurately what's happening because he's He's so insulated and he only knows what his, his generals are, are telling him. We have some idea that he knows that this thing is dragging on too long because there's um, individual people who are around him who are now under house arrest, who have been arrested. And some, so, we, there's, so, so something is happening in which you can see that Putin is displeased with how things are going. But we don't know the full extent of what he's aware of. I, I don't see a scenario where Putin is ready to end this looking like a total loser, you know, right. in, in terms of e even if he has these military victories, but it's like, you know, the Ukrainians finally in the end, you know, um, or really impress everybody military to the point, you know, to the point where the Russians look terrible. I, I, he's going to have to, he, he's going to want to, in other words, I don't, and I don't think that he's looking for an off ramp at all. You know, people keep talking about, Oh, you know, Maybe Putin wants an off-ramp at this stage. I don't see that. I don't see why he would want an off-ramp until he has a sense that that he knows that the rest of the world knows that that they were the stronger power in this situation. Which is why, unfortunately, I do think that we're going to see um, more destruction. I think that we the the images that we're going to see of civilian deaths are going to are going to continue to go up. Um, until Putin is satisfied that it's obvious that he that he is the stronger power, more capable power. So it's kind of a paradox here because our our objective from, from the United States' perspective, you know, I want a, a Ukraine, an independent Ukraine in some form by the end of this. 
worst case scenario is, you know, the Russians, well, this is, this is worst case kind of, I mean, the worst case scenario is terrible, even worse than this, but you know, if, 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 if Russia takes all of Ukraine they're they are the amount of just uh, geographic territory that's right up against NATO countries is just enormous. And the chance of continued um, uh, problems with Russia and NATO are just sky high. I mean, we, we won't be anywhere to the point where we can be comfortable with the situation. So we want some kind of, of Ukraine, independent Ukraine, that's the buffer state in between the Russians and the NATO alliance. Um, so, our, you know, the goal is to help give Zelensky the best hand he can play in a final political um, negotiation that is something good for Ukraine where Putin can say that he wasn't a total, a total failure. Right. Okay. So you're, so, all right. So you've cashed it out nicely. So to help Zelensky get the best hand he can have um, on one side, we may have the Chinese coming in to assist Russia. Uh, the West has been assisting Zelensky in a number of ways, in a number of ways we haven't been assisting him, right? There's some things that he's been demanding from the beginning uh, that we haven't provided. Uh, so let's get into some of that. It, when you replay his his speech to the Senate today, uh, they showed a video, a well-produced video um, showing a lot of images of Ukrainian cities prior to the war. Um, you know, quotidian joys being enjoyed, peace, order, general justice. And then he showed the images of those same cities uh, being raised in many cases to the ground, buildings collapsing, um, you know, dead children, uh, children in hospitals, et cetera. And it, it ended with the words, close the skies. Mm. So, you know, very strong. And if, if you're motivated by emotion, uh, you're ready to go in guns blazing. Uh, this idea of close the skies, of course, is a reference to the no-fly zone that Zelensky has been asking, um, maybe simply rhetorically, but but probably sincerely asking uh, the West to impose. Um, you know, for many people, I think it's this seems like, well, this is just a matter of justice, right? We have a just cause. The innocent are being abused. Um, you know, I've had people tell me, Mark, you're a just war scholar. You're pro-justice. Um, you say we have to protect the innocent. We have to take back what's been wrongly taken. Uh, we have to punish sufficiently grave evil. You know the three classic Thomistic causes uh, for a just war. Uh, so therefore, let's let's go in, right? Um, those of us who know the just war tradition well might sadly say, not so fast, right? So uh, let me put it to you: why why not close the skies? We have we have cause. Um, that's undoubted, right? Why not close those skies? How would a just war scholar, a good one? Well, I, I, I certainly think that there would be just cause there. That would right. be just cause. The, the, the big giant question is, you know, it's a matter of prudence and wisdom right. and of, of, of realistically thinking through what happens, what happens next. And you think about, um, um, the probability of success of what you're actually trying to, uh, to to achieve. I mean that I think that the no fly zone, the no to to actually impose a no fly zone right now, would mean that the United States is in direct co combat with with the Russian Federation. And and I don't blame Zelensky one iota for asking for that for demanding that. He would of course he should ask that. 
And, and so I think that there are some people who have been disparaging him saying why he's asking that because he wants the U.S. in the fight. Well, yes, he wants the U.S. in the fight <laughs> because we can bring this thing to a conclusion. Um, you know, is, that's what he's thinking is the United States, you know, instead of just sending us stuff, why don't you all just come on over? Um, but, but we have to be wise and our government also has to think about second, third order effects and has to understand, has to think about our, our people too and, and our interests and that's part of the equation. Now, I do think that the conversation about a no-fly zone is unfortunately distracting us from having um, a, conversations about what else the United States could more realistically be doing to help Zelensky that would be very, very effective. I mean, the no-fly zone is, is I think sort of a, a way to just get the United States to be participating in, in direct confrontation. But I would like to avoid that. I also don't think we should be talking about our unwillingness to do it. You know, I think that in our wisdom, we should not be taking tools off the table. President Biden should be allowing all the tools to stay on the table to get the Russians to reconsider what they're going to do. But um, President Biden is extremely risk averse. And so out of a right desire to not be directly um, fighting the Russians directly, he is, he has ceded this escalation control to the Russians because there's plenty of things we could do. Okay, so for instance, for the longest time, there's some question about whether or not we're doing it now, but up and if, if we are doing it now, it literally just started last week. The Biden administration would not provide real-time targeting data to the Ukrainians. There was like a, there was, there was significant latency from the time we would be able to spot and tar be able to see where the Russian convoys are and where how to get to them and how to target them. And be, be, for this fear that the Russians would then claim that the United States was a co-belligerent, we wouldn't give them that data until the trucks have moved and then we would give it to the Ukrainians. I mean, that is just, we should not be talking about doing it. We should be providing real-time targeting data. We should be providing them more stingers the Biden administration was very late to the game in providing stingers. Those are the air defenses. Those are actually, I mean, get them stingers, get, get them more and more and more stingers. It was the Lithuanians and the Latvians who were much sooner ready to give theirs over to the Ukrainians. And then they needed to be backfilled by the U.S. So there's, there's that. I mean, I could go on with different, I mean, I'm, I'm very supportive of these Polish MiGs getting into the Ukrainians, not even just for their military utility. Right. which they would have, but for the morale boost right. to be able to have the Ukrainians right. zip, zipping around their skies in their fighter jets would right. be huge for Ukraine. Um, Not so to mention updating things, Poland's own yeah. Air Force. That's kind of nice by backfilling it with better planes. That's kind of nice. But it, well, And we should do it. Right. I, I'm, I'm like, and, 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 and we should do it. And we, we have the ability to do it um, if we had the political will to do it. So I just think that there's there's so much so much that the United States is still so hesitant about doing before we get there that that I think we should be, you know, and, and the other thing, and, it, and literally, it's it's almost like every time President Biden says, or another Biden official says, we won't do this thing because we don't want to escalate, we don't want to provoke, because they say that those are their arguments. The Russians respond with increased brutality, right. increasing their target set. I mean, now they're now they took out an international training facility just miles from the Polish border, killing mm -hmm. 35 people. I'm sure many of those were international people, um, you know. So 
And now, and they're now they're hitting, you know, they're near Lviv where we have a humanitarian corridor. And NATO is operating that, and the Russians are, are hitting targets surrounding there. And so they, they are the ones that are escalating. And the Biden administration's risk aversion is ceding escalation control to the Russians. So they're not having the effect of de-escalating. It's actually escalating in the Russians' favor. Right. Okay, great. So let's, let's catch up a part of this conversation, make sure everybody's with us, and then I want to push it further. So going back to just our analysis. Okay. We've identified that, look, there's cause. We get that. Yes. Um, and in the just war analysis, many people will say, well, you know, if you've got the right authority, if you've got a just cause, and if you've got the right intent, you're permitted yes. to go into conflict. I, I often stress that harder. I think if you've got the sovereign authority, the just cause, and the right intent, you're actually obligated hmm. to go into a fight. Now, as you've already identified, there's now prudential restrictions that, that may moderate that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that in, is in one sense to me a part of uh, maybe the tragic implications of Christian realism, because the Christian realist can't indulge as maybe the idealists can in simply the oughts. Oh, we ought to aid the Ukrainians. So therefore, we jump immediately to policy prescriptions, uh, which might make the heavens fall. Uh, prudence dictates, actually, we ought not to do those things if we can help them that make the heavens fall. And so the Christian realist recognizes that very often there's this conflict of oughts. Like we we ought to help the Ukrainians. We ought to be responsible for our own people. Um, we ought not to recklessly or rationally um, escalate to a, a, a nuclear exchange, etc. So the realist is all about, especially the Christian realist, about reconciling oughts. And prudence mm-hmm. demands that we do these things. And you've touched on the idea of the probability of success. Can we really make a difference? You would add to that proportionality. Um, we could do a lot of good by coming directly to the aid of the Ukrainians. A lot of bad things would also result from that. So you begin to weigh the calculus, um, both of doing certain things and of not doing certain things, all of that. And so you've, you've, you've argued that prudence dictates that we not get into a direct confrontation with the Russians. Um, but you're also arguing that prudence dictates that there's a lot we can and ought to do. Yeah. And so in order to to firm up Zelensky's hand, uh, what what can we do? So just before I get to that too, I want to just agree with you on on some very important points. I mean, I I would say the the other thing that we have to think about is what is what would be the outcome we're trying to to achieve and what would it cost to do that? And and is and is the death that would almost certainly um, come from that can you know how do you weigh that proportion proportionally with what what is the good that you're going to achieve you know right, right? because just and the just war theorist begins with i mean where it's it's justice it's to protect the innocent and we understand that there will be innocent people who though we are intending to avoid and intending to protect will will be casualties in any conflict and so you have to weigh what kind of death and destruction is going to happen um, versus what is the outcome I'm trying to achieve in protecting the innocent. And so I'm also very wary that, you know, even for Ukraine's sake, you don't want the United States and Russia going head to head if we can avoid it in Ukraine. I mean, the, the, we, would, we would not leave it the way we found it. Right. And no, so that, that is something that we have to just think through very, very carefully. Um, now, having said that, 
I would not take, but I would not insist that we could never do it. I mean, we, this is why you, you always want to give yourself maximum options. You don't want to be taking options off the table. So I would, I would not even, and I also disagree with this idea that President Biden said that any military confrontation between the U.S. and Russia would necessarily result in World War III. Correct. That's just a, that's a, that's a, that's just a, that's a belief, but there, there is this, you know, but we're, they're both countries are rational actors and both countries would be weighing risk assessments all the time anyway. So that, that is not true, but we would still like to avoid it to the extent we can. So we should be, I think, giving Zelensky the real-time targeting data. We should be giving him these Polish MIGs. Um, we should we should be constantly arming him. I mean, and he even needs things like, I mean, the Ukrainian people who stayed to fight, I mean, they need things like rifles and ammo, um, camouflage netting. They need they need sniper rifles. I mean, they, they need some things that we we have the ability to get to them. They need air defenses that, and we've got some in Eastern Central Europe already there that we can just start getting in there. But again, the, it, it part of the problem right now is the Biden administration has been holding back on approving a lot of this stuff and getting some things in there at a, at a high tempo. Now to their credit, they are giving them a lot of important things, but it's been very slow, which I think reveals a lack of total commitment to making sure that we're doing everything that we can to help help Ukraine fight for its own defense. Sure. Now, you've used the word a couple of times, escalation, um, escalation dominance. So there's this frustration that I have watching this that, you know, back in the good old days, it seemed like everybody understood that deterrence was supposed to mutually deter. And like all of us recognize that this is a problem and we're all hamstrung by it. But in this latest conflict, it seems that as if the only person doing the deterring is Putin and that we're back on our heels and and we're not returning it. And this leads to all sorts of questions. Some people will question whether or not Putin's rational. Others will say, well, he's rational, but he might not be reasonable. And we're trying to get into the mind of, of, of Putin, but we're on our heels. So being prudent, not over-escalating, what are the strategies that we can kind of reverse this trend, uh, be forward-leaning? Um, can we win back you know, the escalation dominance. What is escalation dominance anyway? Yeah. How, do you, how do you play that? How did two nuclear powers play that? What can you say about all that to, to help us sort so that this, through? This, this idea, and it's it's in, you know, it's in regular cable news. Everyone keeps talking about escalation, escalation. Right. Biden officials keep saying we don't want to escalate. I've got somebody on Twitter right now tweeting at me saying that my support of getting the Polish MiGs to Ukraine is escalating. Yeah. I mean, that is just... Putin is escalating. Vladimir Putin is escalating. I mean, what what we mean by escalating is increasing the degree to which the fight just ratchets up. It it increases. Putin is, like I said, he's he's escalating by his willingness to brazenly kill civilians. Mm -hmm. He's escalating by he keeps he keeps um, smashing acceptable behaviors. He keeps kind of plowing right through them that we think are in just war. And He's escalating in that he's getting closer to NATO countries, which also risks unintended escalation. I mean, you can you can you can inadvertently um, hit something you don't mean to. You can have I mean, supposedly there's like Russian drones that have gone into Polish airspace. Um, so there's a lot of things that can happen that are really bad when you start dancing around that border. Um, and and so what ha- what 
I mean, no. So, the, so I just want to be clear on this point. There's no reason, especially so the um, the Biden people keep saying that you know air defenses are actually more effective, which I just said too, than maybe the fighter jets. And then they say, but that but the jets would be escalatory. That doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, it would it would, you know, but they're so afraid of escalation, meaning they're afraid of the war becoming more lethal. But you know. For us as Americans who want the Ukrainians to prevail, we want the Ukrainians to be more lethal against the Russians. Right. You know, so we're not blind in terms of our who we, we want lethality on the, on the we want we want Russian casualties because that's going to give the the Ukrainians a, a better hand to have a a better um, uh, hand to play whenever we get to the point, Lord willing, sooner rather than later, where they're negotiating a peace settlement. So. So this escalation control is just, it, 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 what it is, is it's, you know, when you get into a major crisis like this, the, the power that is willing to escalate further is the one that gets gains. And so far, the United States-led sort of, if you can call it that, effort here has ceded escalation to the Russians again and again and again. And it's counterintuitive, but the way you actually get the Russians to finally heal, like to get to the point where they're ready to cry uncle, is you have to escalate and can say, I'm, these, there are certain lines and you don't have to be explicit publicly, but they have to be made to think that there are lines that they cannot cross without incurring a response from the United States and NATO allies that would make them regret their decision. And I don't see the Biden administration signaling what those things might be. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. chemical weapons use, I mean, a low yield nuclear weapons employment. I think those are real possibilities on the side of the Russians, not high probability in the case of, 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 a, of, a, of a nuclear employment. But I definitely think it's within the realm of the possibility. We shouldn't just assume that they're bluffing. Right. And, and so there should be stronger signaling on the part of the United States and NATO that they should not do that. And, and I, I just think that we're ceding too much, too much um, escalation control to the Russians. So, there, OK, so there's a lot there. You've you've uh, you're making a case that, you know, Biden shouldn't be saying certain things out loud. At the same time, he should be gesturing or hinting toward certain things that that are firm. So what is what is the balance between ambiguity and mm -hmm. deterrence and clear communication? So for instance, that's it. so good question. So for instance, one of his blunders, I think, is when he said, we will defend every inch of NATO territory. A lot of people, <laughs> yeah. so a lot of people thought, well, that's great. And I said, the problem with that is, is it's too specific. So then it's like, oh, so we can go all the way up as long as we're not in NATO territory. Oh, so we can do chemical weapons attacks. Oh, so we can keep hitting kids in hospitals and women's maternity wards. And, and it's like, it's too, oh, or we can keep going and get Moldova not a NATO member, or like, right. it's just, it is, or now's the time for anybody anywhere in the world to take what they want as long as it's not a NATO member. Right. <laughs> it's communicate, it's signaling too, too much specificity about where the US is willing to go defend. So my hope for the President Biden, because I do want him to, to I do want, the, this administration needs to look and see their approach has not worked. Their approach is not nearing us closer to a peaceful outcome that's anywhere near a just outcome. So they need to kind of reset. I would, I would stop listing what, what we are sending and what we are not sending to, to the Ukrainians. And I would say, and I would start 
you know, trying to make, I would start saying NATO missions, you know, the United States will defend NATO missions because that's, that's, that's broader. That includes the humanitarian corridor. So the Russians have to be made to be thinking that certain behaviors might actually cause, because Russia does not prefer to fight a war with the NATO alliance. I mean, that would not go well for, for Russia, regardless of how that might ultimately end, it would be very bad. And so how can you continue to get the Russians to credibly think that this or that escalation might be a bad thing for the Russians to do? So you, you know, I would, I, my, the rhetoric I think should be a bit broader um, and, and to communicate to the Russians. And then we should stop saying what we are not willing to do. Another big blunder of this administration was saying that the MIG transfer would be risky and they said it would be escalatory. If you say that, even, and then they say, but polls, you're welcome to do it anyway. Well, I mean, you've just put them out on the branch and sawed off the branch, you know, because now the polls send in these MIG fighters, which they still might. The United States has told the Russians that that is escalatory, escalatory. and risky. Right. Um, so I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but that's how I would. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> yeah no, that, yeah, I, I, that's a satisfying answer. Okay. Um, you know, it's not just the present conflict, right? I mean, I, I know we have to get through this one, uh, but it seems that we're at risk of alerting Putin to the idea that, hey, guess what? You have a permanent Trump card, whatever you do in the future, uh, because there are certain things that we're not going to do because we don't want to escalate, because you have a bomb. Um, it seems that this signals all sorts of things to world observers. And we could talk about what it might signal to China, uh, to Iran, etc. But it's also interesting to point out what this might be signaling to our allies. And if I look at the lessons learned in Ukraine, first of all, if I'm Ukrainian, I'm wondering why in 1994 we gave up our Soviet era nuclear arsenal, because I would think, well, that would be really handy for us to have right now. If I'm another non-nuclear power that might be less confident that the American nuclear umbrella will stay over me, I might be thinking, oh, now's a good time for me to acquire one of those things that Putin has and has been using to good effect. Uh, is there a risk of proliferation after this? How do we mitigate that risk? Is that a good thing? Maybe everybody should have the bombs so that we a don't nuke have in every to... pot. Yeah. Well, is that yeah, a nuke in every pot. So Rebecca I mean, Heimer, realists, what do we what do we do with this? So, uh, oh my goodness, this is this is what really the, the the one point in this whole war where I really had to like walk away from the media because I was just I could not believe the error in the judgment of my government mm. was when the Russians were saber nuclear saber rattling rhetorically. They've got nuclear capable systems that they have deployed, um, and. They're now, and then you've got Russia, you've got Putin saying that we're going to put his nukes on increased, you know, alert right. and all these sorts of things. And my advice that I wrote a piece about was saying that we should now, now is the time for us to calmly and coolly remind the Russians that that would, that they're being irresponsible. We also have nuclear weapons. We should, I said that we should actually lead a NATO military exercise that included nuclear delivery systems in it, bombers and that kind of thing, and just conduct this military exercise. The Russians conducted a massive military exercise to coincide with the invasion. And we can, we should be conducting one. Um, and 
you know, to, to just demonstrate that we have resolve and that that's what deterrence is. If, if you even think that any kind of nuclear weapon would be would go well for you, you are mistaken. We have proportional responses. We're ready to use them. Instead. Instead. What did we do, Rebecca? We, the Biden administration announced they were going to cancel, well, they'll, they call it delay, a long planned ICBM, those are our, you know, our, our missile delivery systems that can reach all the way to Russia. They're going to cancel a long planned unarmed flight test. I couldn't believe it because that, that is not even, they basically in doing that. And they said that they were going to do it because they were essentially, they didn't want to be provocative. The Russians are nuclear saber rattling. <laughs> And so the United States was not going to conduct this long planned. I mean, the Russians knew that test was planned. So it wasn't even like we were going to throw it together now. I mean, this was planned. That is just the, they choked, our, our government choked because the, they basically in doing that confirmed the Russian government's assessment of how intimidated we are by nuclear weapons. We should not be, we should very diligently be working to increase the credibility of our own deterrence so that nobody employs them. And we should be diligently working to assure our allies that we will, that our umbrella to them is, is real and credible. And, and so now is not the time to, to, to go weak need on our nuclear deterrent and, and, and on long plan tests that demonstrate to us their readiness, their safety and security and reliability. So, um, you know, and, and then on proliferation, I mean, I, I mean, it was only, it was like a week after that or something. I mean, time is like a flat circle right now, but I think it was like a week after that, former prime minister of Japan, Abe came out and said, hey, maybe it's time we need to start thinking about Japan hosting nuclear weapons again. I mean, holy smokes, that, it, that would not be U.S. interests for other countries to think that now they need to have nuclear weapons. It's the United States needs to be working hard. I mean, the more everybody has nuclear weapons, I mean, you're starting to get into some sporty territory where the risk of employment can, can possibly go up. You, we, we, we should be shoring up our nuclear umbrella, the credibility of that and of our deterrence. And so that's what I think that the administration should be working towards. Unfortunately, it, again, they're just so risk averse. It's having the unintended effect, I think, of, of just strengthening the, the, the leverage in the hand that the Russians have. You've got this great line that, that I've used to, to good effect. Um, one of the first things I think I heard you say on the subject is that America, and this might be a little bit of a misquote, this is a paraphrase, uh, but it's a Heinrichs original. You said something to the effect of America has been using nuclear weapons every day since August 9th, 1945, right, to maintain the peace in the world. Um, and any time that, that that resolve to use them, and by this, of course, we mean their deterrence effect and, and the credible deterrent effect, um, any, any, any lack of resolve on that part seems to threaten uh, the enormous goods that they've done, like them or not. And that's absolutely right. We're using them right now. We use them every day. We, we are using them to preserve peace and to, and to prevent those um, adversaries who would love to weaken the United States, who oppose what we stand for and the principles that we hold dear. And, and they are, and other countries have different ways of thinking about nuclear weapons and how they would use them and coerce with them. And so the United States's nuclear umbrella is a fundamental part of what it means, is what, of what we say the US led order. 
that it's, it's, so if you, for, for those who argue, okay, listen, you know, the U.S., the nuclear umbrella is a thing of the past. People need to start getting their own nuclear weapons. That would be, they are embracing American decline. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as we've talked about before, I still believe firmly the strongest country will have the most influence in the world, and it should be the United States. We, we should have some moral clarity about, about, about that. And, and a fundamental uh, component of what that means is, is our nuclear arsenal. That is the keystone of our defense. It is what makes our conventional, meaning non-nuclear weapons, uh, powerful. It's what allows them to project power because they are backstopped by the credibility of the American nuclear deterrent. And, and so it is fundamental to American preeminence. And, and I mean, now we're, we're watching in real time what happens if you don't have confidence in that and, and the goodness and the rightness about the role that our nuclear weapons are playing. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's probably a great place to stop. It's, a, it's an emphasis on, I think, a pair of truths that I think a lot of our uh, you know, uh, fellow citizens are less confident about. One is the importance of a hegemon in an acephalic world in which there are no leads. Uh, somebody's going to have to take the lead. Uh, and second, in the, in the rightness and the goodness of America to be that hegemon. And, and we've demonstrated, I think, um, more often than not, that we can be a benevolent hegemon who is able to retract wherever we can and allow everybody um, the opportunity to flourish um, you know, as human beings. And there's, there's not and, a lot of and, other people or other nations who could do that. No, and, and furthermore, I would say to, to think about it, it's, it's relative. I mean, we, we as realists understand that we're not trying to create a utopia. I mean, right. just war theorists, I mean, I think the just war doctrine belongs to realists. Because right. we understand that in this broken world, we have evil and, and good, and, and you have to, and war is going to happen in this anarchic system um, between countries and among countries sometimes. So how do we think about warfare justly to the extent that we are able? And, and, and I, I mean, we, we didn't talk about this too, but I wanted to, the Russians certainly don't think about just war the way we do. I mean, the Russians have violated every principle of just war, both in their entry into this war and in the way they are um, carrying out their military campaign. And so you can see right before us the difference between if Russia were to dominate Europe versus the United States and our, and our NATO allies, which do believe that there is a such thing as war crimes. and. And, um, and so, you know, again, it's relative, yes, yeah, the United States is, of course, we're, we haven't been perfect, but we are at least um, ascribing to a set of principles that, that are good, and we're aiming for those. And when we err, it's because we have that standard, and we can see where we err, and that standard is good, and it's, it's certainly worth um, continuing to fight for and aim for, so... Right. We, yeah, that's right. We have the values that allow us to be hypocrites. At least we have a standard by which we can be hypocritical, right? That's saying something. Well, supposedly Biden's going to be announcing an aid package today. Um, hopefully he uh, has been listening to this podcast and uh, there's some of the things in there that that we hope to see in there. Meanwhile, uh, all best wishes to the people of Ukraine. Uh, Rebecca Heinrichs, thank you for your time. Thank you for a passionate, wide-ranging discussion. Look forward to another one. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Good to talk to you.